Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would do a short episode responding to a patron email. But before I do that, I just want to make sure everyone understands that we are changing the feed potentially because we're going to start adding ads. You may have heard me talk about this before. And there's a chance that you might not get updated episodes on your phone. And so you might have to resubscribe or something. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work, but they they tell me that it's it's going to be a seamless technology transfer. But uh, I'm skeptical, and so if you stop getting new episodes updated to your phone, uh, just email me contact at psychologyinseattle.com or or just resubscribe to the podcast feed, and and hopefully that'll fix the problem. Um, okay, so. Today, I'm going to respond to patron Florence's email. She said earlier this year, 2016, I've recently become a patron of your podcast. I love it. They're very informative and your voice is very soothing. Your voice is very, very soothing. I've never thought about my voice as being soothing. I've I've often thought about my voice as being very nasally and not very pleasant. Uh, When I hear it on recordings, I often cringe at at it. But I'm glad one person on the planet considers it not annoying. She goes on to say, I was wondering if you could perhaps do an episode on bipolar disorder. Well, sure. I'll do a short episode about it. Uh, as a caveat, I will say I'm not an expert on bipolar. There are people in my field that are experts, and there are people in my field that treat it much more often than I do. And so I just have to say that it might, you know, for people outside of the field, they might not realize that in my in our field of psychotherapy and psychology, there are so many different areas and so many different types of jobs, shall we say, that what that means is there are some things that even in my 20 years of being a therapist, I have very little experience with. For instance, with schizophrenia, uh, I am thinking I have never had a client that had schizophrenia. So, and that, you know, might surprise some people. I get it would be akin to if you're a physician and you specialize in, you know, the ear, nose, and throat, there's a chance that you'll never treat, say, I don't know, genital warts or something. <laughs> um, I think to people outside of medicine, they understand that because they go to these different doctors when they have an issue. But for some reason, when it comes to psychotherapy and psychology, it's assumed that we know everything about everything. And, and why would that be? Why would that be the case when there's when there's really just so many things? So bipolar is something that I don't specialize in. It's not something I, I try to get experience in. It's not something I try to get um, knowledge of. I, I've only randomly uh, come across it in my practice because occasionally I'll get a referral for it. You know, some someone will contact me and say, that they want help with it. And I will determine that I have enough expertise to help them with uh, where they're at. And so, so what I would do, so I thought instead of just going over the DSM criteria and all that boring stuff, I thought I would just actually describe to you a few presentations that I've experienced in my career and in my personal life as a way of describing it because bipolar is, is, is complicated 
and it has a lot of different nuances and a lot of different presentations, particularly when we get outside of the classic presentation. If you don't know, bipolar is the new word, uh, the, the word that's been used for the past 20 some odd years for manic depression. And the general tagline is you have bouts of depression, which most people understand, and you have bouts of mania. And mania is something that most people don't understand because it, it's kind of rare. Uh, but I'll, I'll get more into that as I describe these, these people. Okay, so um, one, uh, uh, I'll, tell, I'll tell you about a, a kind of classic severe bipolar presentation. This was uh, a client, and he, as a, uh, his, his parents had mood disorders, so there was obviously a genetic component in him developing the disorder. As a child, reportedly, he didn't have any symptoms. As a, as a teenager, he didn't have any noticeable symptoms. In his 20s, he started to exhibit some depressive episodes. And, and some what we call hypomanic, hypo meaning uh, not as severe. You know, you have hyper, which means above, and you have hypo, which means under. And so hypomania means that it's not as severe as as full-blown mania. So um, he would he would have a minor bouts of mania but in his 20s, but it wasn't noticeable because it, it just seemed like he was a fun guy during that time. He was very outgoing when he was hypomanic. He had a lot of energy. He was the life of the party. Everyone liked him. Uh, he was always, you know, gathering people around him and, and, and doing things and he would get things done in his life. He, he would move forward in his career. And then when he was depressed, he wouldn't do any of those things. He would just sit in his room and uh, have a really difficult time with his mood. And then as he got older and he went into his 30s, his, his manic episodes became worse and they culminated in a time when he was so manic and hadn't been treated because he hadn't been diagnosed that he had an episode where he believed that everyone would give him whatever he wanted. So he, he had this thought, that, you know, it's sort of like it, the thing about mania is we can all kind of relate to it because We've all had we've all had times where we felt very energetic and where we felt like we could get things done. You know, we're just like, okay, today I'm gonna I'm gonna do all this stuff and I'm gonna clean the house and I'm I'm gonna contact those people I haven't reached out to in a long time ago. And so we can kind of relate to that. So just times that by a hundred or a thousand or something. And you know, when we're in those really good moods, we might be more talkative with the person in line at the grocery store. Well, when you're manic and you are in that state, you not only just talk to the person in the line at the grocery store, but you believe that person loves you because you have such an elevated self-esteem and you have such an elevated, grandiose, irrational sense of your own competence and your own charm 
that you just sort of bulldoze everyone around you. And so he, he did that. He, he, for instance, just one of the events that, that he did was he went into a clothing store and asked for, uh, you know, he was, he was like, Oh man, I need, I need some new, I need some new clothes to match my new found self-esteem. And he pulled some uh, clothes off the rack and he went up to the cashier and, you know, he, he started befriending the cashier and, and he, he, instead of paying for the clothes, he just, he just said, I'll pay you back. You know, Hey man, you know, we're friends now. Uh, I don't, I don't have money in my wallet, but, um, I'll, I'll, I'll take the clothes out of the store right now and I'll definitely get you back. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? You can't do that. Even if we were best friends, which we're not, you still have to pay for your, your clothes. And, and this individual said, ah, oh, come on, man, we're friends. And then he just walked out of the store and he did a number of things like that. And the cops were called naturally. And then when the cops arrived, he again, tried to befriend, oh, come on, you know, we, I don't need to be arrested. Everything's fine. And the, the cops are like, uh, you know, we're taking you in. And then he became very angry at the police officers and, and everyone else because in his mind, he was a perfect individual and had nothing wrong with him and had done nothing wrong. He was just talking to his friends and and he was just borrowing things and what's the big deal here? And so that that was his, his uh, big manic episode. He was detained and then forced into treatment, and um, that's when I met him uh, uh, shortly after that. Put on medication uh, and, you know, really struggled. The medication didn't work all that well for him, and so he would still have uh, long bouts of, of at least mild depression, if not uh, moderate and would occasionally have uh, manic episodes, particularly when his medication was changed or when he went off his medication. He also had a lot of anxiety and a lot of shame because when he came down from his manic episodes, he would reflect back on these, on these manic times and would be extremely ashamed of his behavior. He would, he, and uh, he really struggled with isolation and with self-esteem and that and so I would talk with him about that and it it was really uh tough to see because there was not a lot I could do to help him um I definitely tried but psychotherapy can only go so far um I can definitely try to help him with how he sees his mood disorder and and try to normalize and try to help him heal from the wounds of of you know being ashamed and saying, look, it's not your fault. I mean, if it's, it's, it's a, it's a mental illness that you're afflicted with and you, you can't be responsible necessarily for your behavior when you're uh, in a manic episode, because it, it, you just, you have a different sort of brain in that moment. And, and so we would talk a lot about reframing and how his, uh, how he saw his situation and, his narrative story of, of his life rather than I'm a loser, I'm broken. It was, I'm, I'm a survivor of mental illness and I am going to persevere through this. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm strong. That was the narrative I was occasionally getting him into. So, so that's one presentation. 
And that's kind of a, a classic presentation in that you see signs of it developing teenager twenties, and then it and then it really kicks in late twenties, uh, early thirties, and you see these you know months long bouts of depression, and then short bursts of occasional mania, and the episodes get more pronounced as the person ages. The the part that's um, a little different is that he was, to some extent, which I haven't mentioned yet, he was to some extent delusional during his manic episodes, and that obvi- you know, that definitely is a feature of of severe bipolar or a kind of bipolar, if you will. But there are plenty of people with bipolar who don't have psychosis or delusions. Um, I think, if I remember right, his his delusions developed into him believing that he could do anything, that he had magical powers. And so, uh, you know, you could imagine being, again, in a really good mood, and if you times that by 100 or 1,000, you might think that you're a god, that you can do anything, that you're, you, again, you have magical powers. Um, another presentation I'll tell you about, which is, uh, I think, also uh, typical of what we would call psychotic bipolar, or bipolar with, with uh, let's see, what's their specific language in the DSM? They'll say uh, bipolar with either mood congruent or mood incongruent psychotic features. So this guy came to me, again, around 30 uh, he was a professional, had a good job, and he came to me because he wanted to talk about anxiety and relationship problems, and I think career problems. And it was all very typical at first. He had very typical complaints. He had very typical goals in therapy, for me anyway. And he... Um, it's it had a, it, the, the long, long story short... Over the span of several months, he descended into his first major manic episode. Uh, The first signs of it were he would tell me about his mother saying really nasty things to him. So he he would say, yeah, you know, my parents came and visited me and under... uh, you know, my mom's breath, she would say things like, I was, you know, a piece of shit, and that I was a terrible person. And I I was like, whoa, your mom said that to you? And he's like, yeah. And I, you know, and so we would talk about how uh, he felt about that. And, and he would describe how uh, no one else could hear her say these things. And he would describe how she would say it in such a way that even though his dad would be sitting right there with them, he couldn't hear it. And he would describe it that she would say these things uh, in between words that she'd be saying. So she'd be talking about, yeah, so I went to the doctor, you're a piece of shit. And the doctor said, you, you know, you're a terrible person. And I just thought, wow, like what kind of, what kind of person is this mother? Now, at the time, there weren't any other signs of, of bipolar or psychosis or delusions, and so I believed him. I just, I just thought that this mother of his was, 
this terribly abusive person. And, you know, I just thought how, you know, how horrible that would be to have a mother like that. And then as time went on, he started talking about how there was this guy at work who was reading his thoughts or breaking into his computer or something. And then, and then he started talking about guys across the street who were uh, reading his thoughts and, and had tapped his apartment and were spying on him. And then he started talking about how the government had, had put a secret message into his car stereo and how he had heard this long, um, statement from, you know, the CIA or something telling him all sorts of things and, and telling him to do all sorts of things. And this is so, you know, each one of these things was progressing as, as the months went on. And then in one moment in my office, a dog barked outside. So we're sitting there in my office talking and this dog barks next door and he said, so did you hear that dog? And I, I said, yeah, I heard that dog. And he said, well, the, the government has uh, infiltrated that dog's mind and that, and has told the dog to bark uh, to alert me to not tell you anything. You know, that, that dog is barking because the government doesn't want me to talk to you. The government doesn't want me to talk to anybody. And the government just, you know, made that dog bark to, to sort of signal to me, to warn me to stop talking to you. And so, you know, as these symptoms emerged, I obviously saw them for what they were, which were delusions and paranoia. And uh, so over time, I started to uh, talk with him about this. And, and at first, as his, as his mania developed and his delusions developed, I was able to convince him that they were delusions. He was able to say, yeah, I'm convinced by you, Kirk, that that doesn't make any sense that this guy at work is working for the government and that I have, uh, you know, some, some, I have a mental illness right now and I can, I can see these delusions for what they are. So while his symptoms were uh, still mild, he, w- he was able to exert control over them and see them as delusions and see them as, as, and, as mania. He had other manic symptoms as well, staying up all night, uh, having um, you know, grandiose uh, thoughts about himself and his self-importance and, and, and this sort of thing. Um, and all the while he was extremely afraid of losing his job. He had this very important job and, uh, he, and, and it was the sort of job where if he were diagnosed with a mental illness, he would automatically be, uh, either demoted or moved to another, um, department or something because the job was so important and so sensitive. And so he, um, for a while we really tried to, you know, keep it under control I obviously sent him to a psychiatrist. The medication wasn't really working. And then it culminated. Uh, and oh, and then another thing I did was I, inv- I started involving the family. I started, you know, involving his, his spouse and, and his parents and his siblings and his children. And uh, that's another thing that I'll get into later as, as that, that, that really, really helps. 
But uh, it culminated in him becoming so delusional that he uh, thought that everyone was out to get him, and he was eventually, um, he, he did something dangerous. He, uh, I won't go into the details, but he, he almost uh, killed himself and his family, uh, not on purpose, but he was driving erratically, I'll just say that. But anyway, he ended up in the hospital uh, involuntarily, and he was fully delusional at this point and thought that the doctors were the were devils and you know all all this sort of stuff it was really quite heartbreaking and it was it was really heartbreaking for for me because i when i first met him months prior to his full blown episode he was uh, he very he wasn't symptomatic you know he just had some some minor complaints about his career and about his anxiety and then he had this, you know, peculiar complaint about his mother saying these things. And so uh, when I realized what was happening, I looked back on that original complaint about his mother and realized that that was also a, a delusion. It was a it was a hallucination. I mean, in all likelihood. Right. So so that's another presentation. Um and uh, another presentation is this this one guy. He he has what we would call in the DSM language hypomanic episode without prior major depressive episode. You can actually have a bipolar or mood disorder that doesn't have any depression, which uh, might sound strange. How can you have? It's like it's in the DSM language again. They call it hypomanic episode without prior major depressive episode. Now, the, this this person that I was treating had come to me after he had been hospitalized uh, during a, a uh, his most severe manic episode in which he, he, he never had any, any delusions. And he, when he was manic, he just made a lot of bad decisions. He, you know, he would pull all his money out of retirement and spend it and, in these really um, irresponsible ways, and he would uh, act weird at work and and tell people, th- you know, things that indicated that he had this, you know, super high self esteem that he could do anything, and he had all these ideas, and he, you know, he's in this really good mood, and um, he, uh, but but he never had any noticeable depressive episodes, and so when he got out of the hospital. He um, entered psychotherapy as along along with uh, taking his medication. We really talked a long time about his his life and trying to figure out you know his moods over time and and you know we both determined that he didn't suffer from depression. He occasionally had uh, bouts of very very mild depression, but uh, you know I I was really hesitant to even label it depression because it sounded more like just regular life. And so I, I determined that he had an odd form of bipolar in which he had very mild manic episodes uh, with, with almost non-existent depression. And the nice thing about this mild case was that with medication, with his mood stabilizer, with lithium, he was able to not have any uh, episodes over time, over a long period of time. And so, um, so he, he was, uh, that's how he presented. 
and he was very self-aware afterwards, you know, when, after hospitalization, when he was not symptomatic, not going through any manic episode, he was, he was able to look back and say, yeah, that was weird that I did that. And that was weird that I thought that. And I was definitely in a different mood and I'm so glad I'm on medication and I'm, and I'm kind of worried that something bad is going to happen. And, and with him, a, a big part of it was learning the warning signs so that he could manage his life, which I'll, I'll get into more lately. Okay, so there's some other presentations that I want to get into that are, are don't meet the criteria that I've that I've seen, but are but these people came to me labeled as bipolar. For instance, one fellow came to me telling me he had bipolar. And, uh, but, but the way he presented, I never really could figure out if it was bipolar or something else. And eventually I just referred him to someone else because he was such a confusing case and it was actually kind of, um, had a lot of risk factors in, in terms of him being violent with other people. But he, the way he presented was he, he was very angry at, at a lot of people. He was, he was angry all the time at, lots of people, including me. And he was also very confused a lot of the time. And in therapy, he had a really hard time tracking. That's the word we use for paying attention or being able to concentrate on a, on a theme or a, or, a, or a pathway in therapy. As, as him and I would talk, you know, we would, we would be on one topic and then the next sentence out of his mouth would, would be something unrelated or I couldn't tell how it was related. And, and so I would frequently say, so let's get back to what we were talking about. And, and he'd be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. And then, and then he'd quickly veer into these other realms. And this is potentially a feature of bipolar and anger and irritability is certainly a, particularly a male presentation of, of bipolar. But I couldn't really nail down the cycles of mania and depression with him. And it was also hard because he didn't have a lot of insight, which is also another thing that some bipolar people suffer from, is that uh, as opposed to the other guy I was talking about earlier, who was able to say, oh my God, I, when I was manic, I did all these crazy things. And I don't want to do that again. And uh, I love the fact that I'm taking medication. And so that, that's what we call high insight because they, they, they can look back, quote unquote, objectively at their own moods and, and see it for what it is, which is a mood disorder. And uh, for, but for many people with bipolar, they have a really hard time seeing it for, for various reasons. Maybe it's self-esteem reasons. Uh, maybe maybe they, their moods are so pervasive to their personality that they can't see the forest through the trees and believe that it's everyone else and not them. You know, when you're manic... You 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 have super high self esteem and and therefore might have a difficult time accepting that there is um, something different about you, and so with this guy who was very angry and would threaten other people and me, um, I I just never really could pin down if it was uh, bipolar or not, and so 
you know, what else could it have been? You know, PTSD comes to mind, narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder. I don't know. It was, it was really hard to, to figure out again, mainly because I didn't see any cycles. I didn't, he was very consistently in the same state. Every time I saw him, he was always angry. He was always confused and he, he always had difficulty thinking and, uh, you know, and maybe someone out there who treats that sort of thing knows exactly what that is. Uh, no uh, disorders come to my mind in terms of what that is. But again, I'm not an expert in bipolar and I'm not an expert in other uh, sorts of disorders that exhibit those kinds of symptoms. I, as a clinician, as a clinician, I tend to deal with people that uh, don't suffer from severe mental illness and who are looking to talk about relationships, you know, like divorce or, um, they want to improve their marriage or they're, um, having trouble with their self-esteem or, you know, mild cases, let's just put it that way. Um, another, uh, person that came to me labeled as bipolar was this teen girl who was very angry a lot of the time and very defiant and, hated her parents, whereas when she was younger, she loved her parents, and her parents seemed to be good parents, non-abusive parents, good enough parents, and she hated them, and she she was often in a bad mood, and she had a lot of difficulty coping with feelings, and she would uh, self-injure as a way of coping, and uh, she came to me, you know, she came to me uh, the family had said she has bipolar, she's been diagnosed, and, and with her, I could never figure out what that was, again, because there didn't seem to be a cyclical nature to it. There doesn't need, always need to be cyclical nature to bipolar and related disorders, but um, but there wasn't any psych- cycling, there wasn't any ups and downs, and uh, again, she was very consistently angry, very consistently in a bad mood. And, um, she had low insight. I don't know if that's cause she's a teenager or what, but, um, you know, so there are other possible things that could have been by, uh, borderline comes to mind. Borderline and bipolar often are, uh, misunderstood to each other. And I won't go into all the nuances on that, but, but, um, it could have been that. Uh, so I was never really quite sure about her. And that's the other thing is that when it comes to these cases that don't fit the quintessential description of a particular disorder, you will find that depending on the clinician, you'll get a very uh, different uh, diagnostic idea about what that is. So if this teenager went around to 10 different clinicians, you would get a lot of different diagnoses. Um, Whereas the guy that I talked about earlier who had uh, hypomanic episodes with no depression, most people would say, oh, it sounds like you have you know, bipolar two, uh, without much noticeable depression or something like that. Or they would say specifically you have other specified bipolar and related disorder, namely hypomanic episode without uh, prior major depressive episodes. And so there are some presentations that you'll get, uh, a lot of agreement on the label, but there are plenty of presentations that, uh, will not, uh, you know, get a consensus regarding what DSM label to put to it. And that can be very frustrating, not only to, to clients, but also to clinicians, because 
as clinicians, we want to feel like we're good at our job and, and that we know how to label things, right? And when we say things like, I don't know what to call this, it, uh, for a lot of clinicians, that's, that's a tough thing to say for, for them. But, um, but there are so many different cases that uh, I've seen that don't easily fit any criteria. And therefore, you just have to say, well, I don't know. Could be bipolar, could be something else. And in, in my uh, career, since I don't prescribe medication and, and since treatment often uh, isn't really affected by the label, I don't really care what the label is a lot of the time. With her, I didn't care what the label was. I knew what to do with her, and that was to uh, you know develop a, a strong relationship with her so that she trusted me, and then do whatever I could to change her schemas regarding her life and her family. To you know, for her to uh, reach out more and and to communicate more effectively with her parents. If she had a complaint, tell them, but don't don't try to kill her parent. I mean, that's an exaggeration. You know, don't, don't hate your parents. Uh, try, you know, tell them why you don't like them in that moment. You have the right to, to complain and to have your parents hear you. You don't have the right to scream and yell at them and say that they're terrible people. That's, that's not helpful. Um, I suppose you have, you, you have the right to do that, but it's not, it's not very helpful. And so, um, so anyway, that, that's that. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you about one more uh, person who came to me labeled as bipolar. It was a seven-year-old boy who was having a lot of difficulty at school, and they actually would—he was in a what they call a what they call it behavior behavior disorder disability, or I can't remember what they used to call it, or maybe they still call it. But there are certain classrooms at at, at elementary schools that are dedicated to kids that. Have a really hard time dealing with regular classes, and so they have they have very. It's usually you know less than ten kids, and the instructor is very good at working with this population. And what they had next door uh, to this classroom was this padded room that would lock. I'm not even joking. It was a room in which they would put kids. This is a public school. They would put the kids in this padded room when they were out of control as a way of giving them a timeout. And they would pad the walls so the kids wouldn't hurt anything. It sounds barbaric. And, you know, I'm not, as again, I'm not a specialist in this sort of thing. So I don't, I don't know what to say about it. It seemed, it seemed strange, but you know, who am I to say, uh, cause I'm not an expert, but when this seven-year-old would have a angry, um, episode in which he would scream and yell, it would last for hours and he would, they would put him in this room and he, you know, by others, his psychiatrists and other people, they were, they were saying he's definitely bipolar. And, I thought, okay, you know, if, if that's what you think, but it's, it's hard to tell with seven-year-olds, you know, is it a phase? Is it something else that the seven-year-old can't articulate? Maybe the seven-year-old has a legitimate thing that is upsetting him and, it's, and he just isn't able to tell us what's wrong. Is it some medical uh, problem? Does he have irritable bowel syndrome and he's in, you know, just in a terrible mood because of that? It, it, with seven-year-olds, it's, it's hard to do it. And, some people actually refuse to uh, diagnose seven-year-olds with such things as bipolar because uh, because of this reason that kids change and 
And also it's hard to assess kids because they don't necessarily tell us everything that's happening. And so, um, but he was definitely labeled bipolar and I thought I would share it with, with you. Um, again, the, the feature that was really latched onto by the cl- other clinicians was that his anger episodes would last for hours and he would scream and scream and scream nonstop, no joking for, he would just stop to take a breath. Uh, I'm not even exaggerating. He would, he would just, ah, ah, he would do that for five hours at a time. And it was believed back then anyway, by many clinicians that that kind of behavior can only be the result of bipolar. And I always thought, is that, I mean, don't we need more criteria to be endorsed other than just, just that? And even that isn't really quintessential bipolar. Um, but you know, maybe they have research showing that kids who do that kind of thing, the majority of them are, um, diagnosed with bipolar as adults as well. I don't know. But anyway, um, so, uh, so just to getting into the treatment a little bit, and again, I just want to say as a caveat, I, I'm not an expert in bipolar. Uh, I've only come across, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 different cases in my 20 years. Um, they, they're very, they're very memorable. I'll put, put it to you that way. Cause, cause it's a quite a scary situation, but okay. So, uh, treatment, well, mainly it's medication and mainly lithium, which is what they call a mood stabilizer. Uh, there are other mood stabilizers that are similar to to lithium, but I won't get into that. Lithium has been used since, I don't know, mid-20th century. It's a very old drug. Um, we currently have no idea how it works. As with a lot of, I mean, to some extent, we still don't even know how SSRIs like Prozac work. There, there are different theories as to why antidepressants work. But anyway, we, 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 have, we really have no idea why lithium works. It just seems to work. And for many people with classic bipolar, lithium is a wonder drug. It, it, it just completely stabilizes their mood. It eliminates their manic episodes and it mitigates their depressive episodes. And, uh, for some people it's a, it's a life changer. Their, um, their whole life is made manageable by lithium. The problem is, is that lithium can uh, harm the body and it needs to be monitored over time. And some people have to go off of lithium because it harms, it harms your organs. Um, other drugs that will are used are antipsychotics and antidepressants to a lesser extent. Um, so, so medication is a big thing for, for bipolar. It's a crucial element, uh, in the treatment of bipolar. And for people that have, um, even mild bipolar, and they don't take their medication. It's it's a scary world without <laughs> medication. Um, uh, I would I don't know the statistics, but I, I would say a good ninety percent of people with bipolar need to take their medication. It's highly advised that they take it. And along those lines, I'll, I'll say that um, you know mania itself. When you're when you're hypomanic or just you know barely just sort of manic, that is a wonderful place to be. For people who have bipolar, they actually will go off their medication sometimes because they miss being kind of manic. They don't miss being full-blown manic, and they don't miss being depressed, but they miss being kind of manic because think about it. If you were just kind of manic, think about all the stuff you could get done. 
I mean, people who are kind of manic, they, they get so much stuff done and they're so outgoing and so charming and so motivated and they have so much energy and they have so much self-esteem. I mean, just imagine if you could have a state like that. All, all of us would love to have that. And bipolar people will miss that because when you go on a mood stabilizer, it takes that away. It takes, it takes away the depression. It takes away the severe mania and it takes away the mild mania that, that feels good. And, and you just feel normal, like a normal American with a boring life. (laughs) And you know that if you go off your medication, there's a chance that, that at least for a time, maybe a week or two, you'll, you'll feel fantastic. Now, you know, that that two week period of time that you feel fantastic is followed by months of terrible mania and and terrible depression. But uh, a lot of people go off their medication because they want they want that feeling back. And so, when I've talked with people with bipolar, a big part of it is convincing them that uh, yes, that is a loss in their life and they have to grieve that, but if uh, they're thinking about going off their medication to to have that feeling again, they must understand that they are also inviting into their life a lot of terrible things. So if they want that two weeks of hypomania, they also are agreeing to have uh, 49 weeks of terribleness. Now, of course, there's no way to definitively know that, but, you know, if the past is any predictor of the future, you know, their past moods, uh, swings can, um, uh, you know, be a deterrent to them going off their medication. Okay. So medication is a big part of it. The other part of it is self-awareness. A lot of uh, people with bipolar have a path of self-awareness and the, the more self-aware they are, the better. Um, they can uh, sometimes, like I said, have very low insight. Um, but the more self-awareness they have, the better because they're in the driver's seat often of their treatment and of how to cope, which leads me to another thing is stress management. They, they have to learn how to manage their stress. They have to learn their triggers because their mood uh, swings can be triggered by stressful life events. And so mood regulation, emotional regulation become, uh, to some extent, a, a way of managing uh, bipolar if you be if you have if you have superior um, you know emotional regulation skills is that going to is that going to eliminate your bipolar no because your brain is just going to have these natural swings but you can uh, reduce the frequency of the swings and the severity by having stress management trigger management emotional regulation um, another thing is that uh, that I will often do as a family therapist is involve the family. You got to get the family involved. You have to start working on the system. Often you will find that someone else in the client's system will be a stress and will um, cause symptoms to be exacerbated. Uh, also, you want to educate the family on it. Because the the family members are the people who are going to see early signs of bipolar. These people are uh, very attuned to the the you know to the patient's moods and know where that patient is. So you know the best person often to uh, to talk to is the patient's spouse, and 
for instance, you know, with, with uh, one client with bipolar I was working with, I uh, met with the wife frequently and would ask her, so what, you know, where would you place his mood currently? And she'd say, well, he, he seems a little down, but not, not too bad. Um, and then a few weeks later, I would ask her, where do you place, place his mood? And she said, well, you know, he seems, he seems normal and stable, like in the middle. And then I might ask her a little bit later, and, and she might say, well, you know, he's been showing some signs of early mania, you know, because I've seen this before. The last time I saw this set of behaviors, a few weeks later, he had full-blown mania. So spouses are often excellent people to talk to um, because the the patient might not see that. Um, in fact, usually the spouse is a better gauge of the patient's mood than the uh, patient is themselves. So, um, so that's a big reason because when you get early warning signs, there are a number of things you can do. You can you can change medication, but perhaps more importantly, you can start to eliminate the temptation uh, to have uh, a lot of self-destruction. For instance, you know, say, say you're working with a bipolar patient and you're talking with the wife and the wife says, yeah, I'm starting to see some very concerning things over the past few weeks. And I think we're heading into another manic episode. And the, the patient is saying, well, oh no, that's, that's no good. That's kind of scary. Well, if if the patient, you know, falls into a full-blown manic episode, the, the patient won't necessarily be on board with even the diagnosis. You know, when, when people are full-blown mania, they might look at their psychiatrist and say, what are you talking about? I don't have bipolar. You guys are crazy, even though earlier they were on board with it. And so when um, you see these early warning signs, you can start to put in place a lot of protective measures to to stave off all the negative effects of, of an episode. For instance... Uh, with with some patients that I've worked with, I have made it so that they don't have access to the internet. The internet has made um, uh, the internet is a attractive nuisance to a lot of people with with mental illness. You know, if if you're having difficulty with anger or with um, with mania or um, with thought disorders, this kind of thing. And there's a lot of opportunities online to create havoc and to abuse people, to make threats. If, you know, um, for some bipolar people, they'll just sit in front of the computer all day long and online and just, and just threaten everyone that they come across. And so that's something that, um, you know, contributes to a lot of what we call, you know, trolling you'll see these just awful comments. Well, a lot of those people are, are suffering from mental illness. I would, I would guess to say that um, a majority of them are because it, you know, it, one person on the, uh, for 16 hours can do a lot of damage on the internet, not only to strangers, but to people they know they can, they can make threats to, to people they know. And so, so one of the ways you can, uh, you know, eliminate the negative consequences to, um, to a manic episode is don't give them access to the internet. Just, you know, say, oh, I'm sorry, honey, our Wi-Fi is down or, or some kind of situation like that. Or you have certain protective things on, on your computer that don't allow certain things to happen. I don't know. Uh, so that's one thing. 
Another thing is, is, is with work, you could, you could work with your employer and, and say, by the way, um, I have bipolar and, uh, I, I, I love my job and, and I'd like to uh, work with you on, on how to help me with this issue. And if you get the employer on board, uh, and so the wife could say to the, to the boss and say, by the way, uh, so-and-so is entering a manic episode and might need some time off work. Because if he comes into work, he, he might uh, not only threaten your your business, but he might uh, threaten his position. He might get fired. So let's just give him a couple weeks off from work. Um, and when when he comes down, he'll come back to work. Is that okay? Um, so so there's a lot of things you can do to to manage people's lives so that they don't completely destroy their lives when they enter an episode. So 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 those are all the different things that that treatment entails. A lot of times, sadly, medication is the only thing that, that is applied and all these other things are not emotional regulations. Um, another thing I should mention is that a a fair amount of psychotherapy can, can work too in terms of helping people with their self-esteem, helping people because, you know, people with bipolar, it's not like their lives are perfect outside of their bipolar. They, they have all the same regular problems that everyone else has. You know, they might have problems in their marriage. They might have trauma issues from their childhood that need to be healed. And so all those things can be addressed in psychotherapy. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. If you haven't become a patron, please do so. Um, for instance, this was a response to email to an email from patron Florence when you're a patron, you get preferential treatment for emails and all sorts of other things. You also get access to our premium episodes. Again, just uh, everyone, uh, if you don't get uh, episodes updating to your phone, uh, know that that was because I'm handing over the podcast feed to an organization that will start putting ads on the podcast, and I'm, I'm worried that something wonky is going to happen. And so just, uh, you know, figure out a way to get the feedback. My guess is, is you just have to unsubscribe and resubscribe. Um, also, you might find that it, when this transition happens, it might download every single episode onto your phone that we've ever done. And we've had hundreds. So um, I've been told that that's a possibility. And so if that happens, you know, watch out for that. All right, well, that does it for this episode. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 